Welcome to the podcast of The Table of Minneapolis Church. We are a community that is committed to practicing the ways of Jesus by creating space for all to belong and be loved. Our hope is that in this podcast, in the message that you will hear, that you'll be reminded again of the eternal truth that no matter who you are or what you've done, who you love or what you've lost, the places that you've gone or the places that you've stayed, that there will always be a seat here for you at the table. For you're a child of God, and beloved, you belong. Enjoy this week's message. I promise, yeah I promise, we will bear fruit. By quick show of hands, how many of you would like to see Christian Ankrum memorize that whole rap and perform it next week? Yeah, me too. Me too. We are in this series right now called Bear Fruit. And in this series, we are talking about if your story is rooted in and running on the rhythms of Christ, what should that story look like? Like, what are the different pieces that ought to be coming to the surface if you are that person? What are the, the ways that the Spirit manifests new life in your life that makes people look at you and go, that looks like good news? That looks like it could leave a dent in darkness. That could bring healing. Well, Paul answers that question. In Galatians 5, Paul says this. Okay. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law whatsoever. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, this is the implication of living by the Spirit. Let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let's be consistent with our character, with the way that we walk through the world. Tonight we are on the second to last fruit. We are talking about gentleness. I don't know that I should be the person to talk about this. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know that I have the the proper credentials to talk about gentleness. I tend to actually be more confused on the matter than now. I can talk about faithfulness. I mean, I have been married for nine plus years now. Hello. And I grew up in a culture where we we were so ingrained. Fidelity. We would sit by radios with blank tape cassettes and wait for hours on end. We wouldn't go to the bathroom. We wouldn't eat and wait for our favorite Ja Rule song to come on, press record. That's how we got me. I know commitment. I know faithfulness. I know fidelity. But gentleness is something different. Now, I suppose there are reasons why this is so. It's probably a lot of, um, there's self-inflicted reasons. There's things I should probably own in my story. But because I have the mic, I'm not going to do that right now. I'm going to cast blame on other reasons. The first person I'm going to point at and blame is the church culture that I grew up in. Now, when I joined a Young Life Campaigners group, anybody else do Young Life Campaigners in high school? Okay. Jordan, just my brother. Great. (laughs) Okay. Um, the first book that we read. Now, I was kind of an outsider to the whole the full faith thing, the idea. I didn't really buy into it, but I partaked in it. The first book that we read in our high school Young Life Campaigners group was none other than Wild at Heart. Have you read this book? Wild at Heart by John Eldridge. Now, if you are not familiar with this book, this is a book that tells you more or less, this is probably not a fair review, but that men were not born to be in cubicles, were born to be on conquest, like climbing mountains, going to war, adventure, 
drinking whiskey instead of water. That's what a man is. Be a man. That's what it said God said. That was the idea behind it. Now, in my campaigners group, by and large, it was those kinds of guys. It was athletes. And so there was like a lot of like, yeah, they were here for that, you know. But then there was me who was like this little guy who was in an NSYNC cover band and wrote songs and one time put on makeup over a zit at school and got caught in doing so. And so I didn't nod my head as fiercely as the others in the group did. But I could tell that something was different about this. You know, I was reading this book, and though I didn't really know any better, didn't really know how to contrast it with who Jesus actually was compared to who John Eldridge said that he was and who we were to be. And so it all felt like maybe, like could be. You sprinkle enough Christianese around the content inside the book, you could sign off on it. But there was one moment. There's this moment, and some of you will remember this moment. There's a moment in the book when John Eldridge talks about his first grade son coming home, and they're sitting at a dinner that night, and he can tell that something is off with his boy. And he's trying to get at it, like, what, what's going on with you right now? Something's not right. What happened? Eventually, the kid says, well, I, I was at the playground today, and uh, another first grader, a bully, came and pushed me over. Now, the little that I knew about Jesus was to love your enemies, turn your other cheek, serve others thing. And so I was excited, actually, to hear what John Eldridge would offer up for advice in this moment right here. What is the Christian response to a bully on the playground? Blaine, look at me. He raised his tearful eyes slowly, reluctantly, actually. There was shame written all over his face. Son, I want you to listen very closely to what I'm about to say. The next time that bully pushes you down, here is what I want you to do. Are you listening, Blaine? He nodded, his big wet eyes fixed on mine. I want you to get up and I want you to hit him. That word is not in there. I forgot to type the most important word in the whole paragraph, but that's what it says. I want you to hit him. Hit him as hard as you possibly can. And this is not taken out of context. This book went on to sell three million copies. And to nobody's surprise, it actually became required reading for La Familia, one of the most dangerous cartels in Mexico. This was the version of Christianity that I grew up in. Now you might say, Matt, how could you not parse that out and see that that's problematic? Well, we really weren't hearing that much different from the pulpits at church. I got a feeling you got around Paul when he was a young guy, or you got around John the Baptist or Elijah. I mean, these dudes seem pretty rough to me. You know, they don't look like church boys, you know, wearing sweater vests and walking around singing love songs to Jesus. I mean, guys like David are well known for their ability to slaughter other men. I've got to think these guys were dudes, heterosexual, win a fight, punch you in the nose, dudes. And the problem in the church today it's just a bunch of nice, soft, tender, chickified church boys. 60% of Christians are chicks, and the 40% that are dudes are still sort of chicks. I mean, it's, it's just sad. You know, well, you walk in at seafoam green and fuchsia and lemon yellow, and the whole architecture and the whole aesthetic is real feminine. The preacher's kind of feminine, and the music's kind of emotional and feminine, and we're looking around going, how come we're not innovative? Because all the innovative dudes are home watching football, or they're out making money, or climbing a mountain, or shooting a gun, or working on their truck. And they look at the church like that's a nice thing for women and children.
I'm the pastor that Mark Driscoll warns you about. <laughs> and yet you're still here. This is obviously a little hyperbolic, but, but it's true. The idea of gentleness as a fruit, as a character of a Christian life, has long been forgotten, if not completely ignored. And instead, we've gone in this opposite direction. This is, men particularly struggle with this, but we all struggle with this. Being gentle, being kind, being caring. It's interesting, you know, you hear a lot of this language coming out of the church and outside of Christian culture, but the only autobiographical statement that Jesus ever made about himself, you know how he described himself? Gentle. Jesus, it's almost as if he went out of his way to say, I recognize there's going to be a lot of talking heads when I leave. There's going to be a lot of people, a lot of people who say a lot of different things about me, but let me make it clear right now that if anything is true about me, Jesus, he said, I'm gentle. I'm gentle. Would you be able to say the same thing about yourself? Are you gentle? Part of trying to answer that question, I suppose, is trying to understand what is gentle, at least from a biblical perspective. Now, when we're trying to understand language of any kind, we cannot go strictly to the dictionary because words change over time. We have to go back into time and recognize not just what the word means, but how the word was actually used. What were the ways that this word would pop up in different conversations, in exchanges of that kind? And we actually have a lot of material that shows us how the word prates was being used. Dating all the way back towards Plato. In Plato, when he was writing about his ideal kingdom of Atlantis, he spoke about a people who had a sense of prates in them, and in that he meant people who moved with an intentional, prioritized aim of helping all that they met along the way. People who were good to others, regardless of who the others may or may not be. Prates. They were kind to all kinds of people. That's good in and of itself, but that begs another question that later his own student, Aristotle, would have to answer. What happens when the people that you meet along the way, the people that you intend to help, what happens when they hurt you? What happens if they take more things from you than put back in you? Aristotle, 300 years before Jesus, he sets out to try to understand what does it look like as a collective community? What are the virtues that we need to aspire towards? If we're going to be people who live beautiful lives, lives of healing and not harm, what does that look like? What are we to pursue? And what he did is he starts charting this out. And he puts down all these different emotions and manifestations of emotions. And he says, this is one extreme. This is the other extreme. Meet me in the middle. He does this with all sorts. One of the things he does it with, though, is the idea of anger. Now, on one line, if you were to think about this chart, on one side of the spectrum, he has this idea of extreme angerlessness. Do you know these people? Nothing can make them mad. That you could spit in their face and they go, that's fine, right? It's a suppression of feelings. They're not actually, anger is just not an emotion that they're willing to take up. Now, some of that, again, comes back tied to a, a toxic Christian culture. 
There has been this perverse story. If it's not about how we are to be warriors for Jesus and soldiers for Christ, there's also this other storyline that says that you are to be allergic to all things that make you angry. Do not get angry. You're not allowed to get angry. You are a Christian. And yet, the Bible doesn't say that anger is restricted. The Bible just says that we ought to not rush towards being angry. The Bible actually goes out of its way to say that you're going to get angry. But when you do, don't sin. Don't make a mess. So Aristotle, he makes this chart. He builds this spectrum and on one side of the vice, the thing that you should not be lifting up as an ideal aspirational virtue is the idea of extreme angerlessness. You ought to feel what you are going through. You can't keep all wounds bandaged up for too long because they will start to fester. This is what it looks like to be a healthy human being. If the gospel is good news, it is going to be healthy for you. It's going to make you a healthier human. So one thing that Aristotle says is this side right here where extreme angerlessness, and then on the opposite side is extreme anger, impulsiveness, reactivity. All right, let's confess some things. I won't tell them about when you freaked out at me, Debbie. That's not what I meant. A couple weeks ago, Rick, I spoke about joy. You remember that? It's a good talk, wasn't it? I felt like I was firing on all cylinders that night. You were pretty lukewarm in the response, okay? But I felt like um, I spoke about joy. And I, I didn't eat much that day, so I was a little tired. And I came home that night, and I was really excited to eat food. Now, when you don't eat food and you're tired and there is no food present to eat, I, you get this thing called hangry. And so... What happened was I called up Chipotle and I said, could you guys make me and my family some food because we'd like to have dinner. They agreed to the terms at hand and I went to Chipotle, went and picked up that Chipotle, brought it back home. My family had a wonderful meal. Chipotle did not make my meal. So immediately <laughs> I called them and um, as if my wife and kids are not in the room, I'm, I'm asking, how do you sleep at night? Like, what did I do to you? Who hurts you? What's your story? I was livid. I'm joking about it now, but I was like out of control, irrational, angry, hung up the phone, and I look over my wife and kids, and they are so embarrassed for me. Like, they're like, what have you become, preacher man? Now, thankfully, because I had to drive back there to get some food, I recognized like, holy cow, it is amazing how quickly you can go from zero to 60. Like how quickly it goes from getting angry to anger getting you, to losing all sense of control, to acting impulsively and irrationally. And so by the time I get to the store, I feel like an idiot. I feel stupid. And I kind of walk into the store, and I kid you not, true story. The manager is like this 16-year-old girl that I was on the phone with. This is late at night. She had all five of her employees standing behind her at the cash register as if I was some crazy man. <laughs> and I walked in there and I said, I said um, I'm really sorry if that got a little weird on the phone there. She goes, sir, you scared the hell out of me. <laughs> and it left, like, it was bad. <laughs> oh, some stories you shouldn't tell, Matt. It just goes too far, exposes <laughs> too much. But it was like this, this amazing moment where we we're actually like, man, I don't even know like, why I was so upset. Just hungry and tired. And here I am preaching a sermon at one moment. Next moment, I'm yelling at a teenage girl. It's just crazy how that happens. 
that's the vice that we're not supposed to lift up. And I say that right now because it's one thing to do it in these rare stories of Chipotle breakdowns and meltdowns, but how often do we do that on the daily in a condemnation culture like ours where every time we log on to Facebook and we see a political opinion that differs from ours? Every time we go onto Twitter and somebody says something about somebody and you don't feel that way and all of a sudden you didn't even realize that they were stepping on your toes, but now that it's registered that they did, you need to make sure that you step on all 10 of their toes. We live in this culture of anger like never before. We actually have statistics around that that are showing how right now the vitriol and the anger is at an all-time high. It's to the point where you look at the political divisions in our country where 70% of both sides no longer sees the other side as equal. Progressives, liberals, they see conservatives as closed-minded and, and dumb. Conservatives, they see progressives as lazy and too loose. I can't remember what the other adjective is. But that's the, this idea where we no longer can actually even see the full humanity, let alone go out of our way to help those that we meet. We live inside of this condemnation culture, walking around with fuses, always quick to be set off by one small thing. Aristotle is saying that that is what will kill you. If Plato was right that we are to lift up this virtue of prates, gentleness, humility, meekness, if it is this thing which says we will be careful of all that we interact with, even if they are careless of us, the one thing that could hijack us is having no control over our tempers, over our anger, over our frustration with the moments at hand. When we just react and we don't respond, we kill the good news that could be brought forth in our lives. Healthy human beings don't do that. So Aristotle has these two extremes. And like he did for all of these on the chart, he says, don't do that and don't do this, but meet me here in the middle. And in the middle, he puts the word prates. Some interpretations of that word would be like, in your anger, you are a person who is always angry, but only at the right things, in the right measure, with the right aim, and at the right time. You're not irrationally angry, nor do you suppress your anger. You steward your anger. Where he gets this word from is actually from the Greek uh, horse racers in the military. When you would tame a wild animal like a horse and you'd make it purposeful for racing or agricultural means, you would call that process prates, strength under control, power under a wise steward. You have the capability to do it, but you have the wherewithal to know what you should and should not do, where you should start and where you should stop. Aristotle says that if you are able to be careful, even with those who are careless of you, you could be compassionate, you could be kind, and you could be a contributing voice to the good news that the world so desperately needs to hear. Could that be our story? Could we be gentle with all people like that? It's interesting in the scripture, one of the things that they tie this word to, this word prates is interpreted in a lot of different words because we don't have one singular English word that best representates the multitude of Greek meanings. But one of the words that comes up is humility. We talked about this before, but that first word that Jesus utters from the cross, Father, forgive them for they have no idea what they're doing. 
What would it look like if we actually accepted that diagnosis and recognized that we have no idea what we are doing and so we walk with broken pieces asking with curious eyes, what are you seeing that I'm not seeing? You are more than the harm that you have inflicted on my life and so I will not treat you as if you, that is the sum of who you are. What would it look like to live gently? Anger is, is not a bad thing. It's, it's a thing. It's a neutral thing. It's a part of our lives. It's a tool. It can either be, it, it's a hammer. That's a great example. It's a hammer. It can either build a home or it can break a home. But how will you actually use it? Like, what will anger, how will it manifest in you? Jesus, we see in his life time and time again, he walks into these scenarios that are um, ridiculous and absurd. And time and time again, we see Jesus getting upset. Scripture goes out of its way to name when Jesus is upset. Jesus is upset. In fact, when he's raising Lazarus from the dead, it actually says that Jesus snorts in indignation. Is that a word, Debbie? Where's Maggie Keller? Indignation? Thank you. Patty, thank you. That's how upset he is. But how Jesus allows his anger to actually be embodied and his compassion to still be expressed is the model of life that we are to take after. I want to point out one example for you. It's in John 8. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now, anybody with basic common understanding would recognize that it takes two to tango, and yet the man is missing. It's just the woman who is here. So that's problematic out of the gates. Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Anybody that's been trapped before knows that's not a welcome feeling. Anybody who's being manipulated knows that's not something that you receive warmly. They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus, he doesn't answer right away. He bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger and they kept trying to pull this out of him. But think about that for a moment. So much of our anger, so much of our, the ways that our story gets hijacked is because we feel like we need to respond in the moment while the wound is still raw. Jesus didn't do that. People make a lot of different ideas. They toss out a lot of different theories about what Jesus may or may not have been writing in the sand. Could it be that he was just buying some time to catch his own breath? To recognize that if he is not responding from a true place of health, he shouldn't be responding. They're asking him again and again, and yet Jesus bends down and he starts to write on the ground with his finger. Eventually, though, after they kept pestering him, he did straighten up and he said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he went back to drawing on the ground. Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to... Was anybody in this scene without sin? Just Jesus. Strength under control. The one person who actually had the authority 
to respond in this way by throwing a stone, chooses not to use his power for control, but instead uses his power in compassion. And he doesn't name the men with their stones. He names the system that says there should be men with stones. He resists the enemies not by mirroring their actions, but by saying that this whole thing is so out of hand. Have we forgotten that none of us have any idea what we are doing? Why are you so quick to reach for that stone? Condemnation culture. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first. There's something about age in growing up and getting some years under your belt that you recognize how many wounds are in your wake. The pretension goes away that you have it all figured out, that you are without sin. There is a reason why the older ones were the first to drop their stones because they were the first to remember all the different ways that they have collected mishaps and inflicted wounds. They had prates in them quickly. They were humbled. If they dropped their stones, will we be the kind of people who drop ours too? Or will we still exist in this never-ending cycle of tit for tat, bomb for bomb, word for word? We're called to be healers. Last example. Patton Oswalt was saying something politically divisive. Don't know the context really, but somebody responded by saying, I just realized why I was so happy that you died in Blade Trinity. Then he gets funny and he says, dude, I already know because one more second of UMS Green in my heart would belong to Patton Oswalt. I get told this at least twice a week by Trump supporters and it always makes me smile and I'm grateful and I'm blessed. Now, this sort of thing, these different remarks come his way all the time. But for whatever reason, on the 24th of January of 2019, Oswald starts looking at this man's timeline and the other things he may or may not have tweeted, wondering, what is it that would make somebody lash out at somebody else that they do not know over just in a difference in opinion? And he realized that hurt people help hurt people. Hurt people hurt people. This guy, he just attacked me on Twitter and I joked back, but then I looked at his timeline and he's in a lot of trouble health-wise. I would be pissed off too. There's some language. Let's deal him some good ones. Click and donate just like I'm about to. He ends up raising over $30,000 for this guy who threw a cutting remark his way on Twitter. Prates domesticating the wild animal to still be in service of healing and not harm, getting off the teeter-totter of revenge and moving towards redemption instead. And just like how Jesus' compassion was contagious in that scene with the older men, leaving to empty hands all around this woman, this man says, Patton, you have humbled me to the point where I can barely compose my words. You've caused me to take pause and reflect on how harmful words from my mouth could result in such an outpouring. Thank you for this, and I will pass this on to my cousin who needs help. 
Patton Oswalt managed to not only let me slide on a rough tweet to him, but started something that has me reevaluating friendships and productive dialogue regardless of political affiliation. He's a good man, and I hope that I can meet him one day to cement our relationship. May others say the same thing about each one of us. Pray with me, Jesus. Give us the courage to be compassionate when it's so much more easy to be cruel. Give us the courage to be empathetic when it's so much easier to blame. Give us the courage to have our minds renewed by the transforming of you, Jesus. Your spirit in our story softening our hands. Give us the courage to be kind, to be gentle with one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Created in the image of God to see the image of God in each and every person that we come across. And that God that we follow described himself as gentle and humble. I loved your message, Matt, because I do think that's something that we don't talk a lot, talk about a lot in our churches, is that that is the fruit of following Jesus Christ, is a gentleness and a humility and maybe seeing the image of God in everybody. We have a chance on Sunday nights when we come together to not just hear a great message and worship together, but we come together around a table and together we take bread and we dip it into the juice and we're reminded of this God that we follow, Jesus, that was gentle and humble. I was thinking when Matt was talking, I always think communion is this time where we not only get to reflect on how God's moving in our lives and through this community on a night like tonight, but when we're reminded that Jesus described himself as gentle and humble, it's a chance to give us rest, rest for our souls. So we invite you to do that as you come forward. On the night before Jesus died, he sat at a table with his disciples and he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. When you eat this, remember me. And he took the cup and he poured wine into the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you. When you drink from this cup, remember me, the new covenant. And that's what we do. So during the music, come forward as you feel called to and there'll be gluten-free elements on this side and regular here, am I right? And you can take the bread and dip it into the cup. And so together as a people who look to a gentle God, please stand as we pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts.
as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil.